We are still in the book of Exodus, our sermon series, and today's reading comes from Exodus 19 and chapter 24, so I'll be bouncing around, but you can find it in your bulletin. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, and while Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all the words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported that the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, ten, and they saw God, the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it was, as it were a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven of clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there. And I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant, Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. On the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Well, good morning. Let me add my welcome to the one you've already been given. And um, some of you know who I am, some of you don't, but I'm... My name is Jim Callum, and it's my privilege to be here again with you all at Hope. And to give you some context, Kelly Fleming's my daughter. 
So I'll give her all the credit this morning. Uh, Gordon's not here, so I'll give her the credit, and that's who I am. And it's good to be with you all this morning. And as uh, uh, Emma had already said, we're continuing the series in Exodus, and we're arriving at the foot of Mount Sinai this morning. So if you've got your Bibles or you can use the bulletin or your device or whatever, if you can get over to Exodus chapter 19. And I appreciate Laura reading all of 19 and 24. And, and not that we're going to go, just take it easy, because we're not going to go verse by verse through all those verses, all right? We're not going to do that. But I wanted you to catch the context of where we're at. We're at a major division in this book. Chapters 1 to 18 in Exodus were chapters that talk about the salvation that God provided, the redemption of his people out of slavery in Egypt, revealing his power, you think of the ten, the ten plagues, and his grace. He didn't have to do that. He chose to do that for his people. We now come to chapter 19, and chapters 19 to 24 is going to be the revealing of the law. It, it reveals the holiness of God and, and what he expects from his people, how he expects his people to live. And, and for me, the title to this is Meeting on the Mountain, because have you ever had a mountaintop experience? Let me, let me explain what that is if you don't understand that. It, maybe you had some time in your life, times where you met God, and meeting God changed your life. It shaped your life, at least for the moment, right? We think of mountaintop experiences maybe at a camp that you went to at one point in time, uh, maybe a missions trip, a weekend retreat. My hope is that for the men this weekend as they're off on this retreat, that, that God will speak to them in powerful ways, maybe ways that shape their lives. An unusual time when you heard or felt the Holy Spirit moving in your life. That's, when we talk about a mountaintop experience, that's what we're referring to. Let me give you an example. I was 13 years of age, and my family was, we were at Ben Lippin Bible Conference. I don't even know if they still have it. But Ben Lippin Bible Conference in Asheville, North Carolina, and I can still remember who the speaker was. His name was Dr. Stephen Olford. He was a, a fiery Brit, and he was speaking and at 13, I can tell you for the first time, I believe God was calling me into church ministry. I would like to tell you that it propelled me all through my teenage years and in college and everything and brought me into the ministry. That's not true. It didn't. But it still was a real time that I felt God met me in an unusual way on the mountain. There are biblical examples of mountaintop experiences. Abraham takes his only son Isaac to Mount Moriah, and, and he thinks he's taking Isaac there in obedience to what God asked him to do, to sacrifice, to kill his only son. Not so. God meets him on the mountain, and he provides a sacrifice, and Isaac's life is spared. Elijah, Elijah on Mount Carmel, doing battle against the, the prophets of Baal. And there's a mighty victory that Elijah wins. God reveals himself as the true God as he consumes the fire there on the mountain. And maybe the most famous mountaintop experience in the New Testament, Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. You remember the scene? He takes Peter, James, and John up to the mountain with him. And there on the top of the mountain, he's revealed in all of his glory. And, and they're overwhelmed by it. And God reveals it as this is his only son in whom he is well pleased. All mountaintop experiences. And so in chapter 19, we come to this mountaintop experience where the children of Israel arise at Sinai, arrive at Sinai. But it was different for Moses. Because Moses had been there before. In Exodus chapter 3, 
It says this, he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Horeb and Sinai are the same mountain. They're two different names for the same mountain. And, and he encounters God. You remember the scene when Moses encountered God in Exodus 3? At, at what? At a burning bush. The bush that wasn't consumed, but it, it's there on fire. And he meets God there for what purpose? So God could instill in Moses the fact that he was calling him to take his people and lead them out of slavery. And Moses, like any of us probably would say, I, I'm, not, I'm just not ready to do that. I don't think I have the ability to do that. And God promises him in Exodus 3, I'm going to go with you. I'll be with you. And the journey begins. And he promises to go with him to rescue the people. And so now, years later, Israel camps at the foot of Mount Sinai. And again, I, we, you know, we read these stories in Sunday school growing up. You read them in church. You hear them in church. And, you, and we lose track, sometimes, I think, sometimes of the sense of the scope of it all. Israel's going to be here at the base of Mount Sinai for almost a year. This didn't happen in a week. This didn't happen in a day. This didn't happen in a month. They're there for almost a full year at the foot of the mountain. Moses is going to make as many as three trips up the mountain. And each time God calls him up and he comes down to tell the people what God has said, you've you, you got to pay attention to how they respond. But, but first let me just set the scene. God wants there to be no mistake that he's speaking. No question that he's speaking. And it's, an empower, it's a powerful and intense scene. Verse 9 of chapter 19. Behold, he's speaking to Moses, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that my people may, listen, hear when I speak to you and may believe you forever. God's going to leave no doubt that he's the one who's speaking. And he's going to leave no doubt that they need to pay attention to what Moses says to them. And then in verse 16, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so all the people trembled. Yeah, that's an amazing scene. I, I, I happen to like going out. I like to be at the beach in, when a storm's coming in from across the ocean, and I love to just sit there and catch the lightning bolts and the thunder and the power of God who created it all. But this is an overwhelming scene. There's no doubt that you're going to be overwhelmed by the presence of God at this point. And every time it happens, when Moses comes down, what is it that the people say? Verse 8, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Everything. It's the response over and over again. Everything that God has said, we're going to do it. We're going to obey. Obedience. How to live as the people of God. Well, what motivates that? What would motivate the people to obey? And here's what God would want. I don't know what we would say. Maybe the thunders, the lightnings, the presence of God. But you go back to verse 4, and, and, and this is what God wants to be the motivator. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured people. You have seen what I have done. And what motivates and what should motivate the obedience of God's people is to remember. To remember all that he's done. 
it's no different for us today. We, we tend to forget, don't we? We tend to forget the things that God has done. When we observe communion, in, in 1 Corinthians, in, Paul, in the passage there, Paul says this, do this as often you do it, what? In remembrance of me. You mean I could forget? I want you to remember what I've done. God says to his people at the foot of Mount Sinai, I want you to obey me, but I want you to obey me because you remember what I've done. I provided salvation for you. And it's a simple message, but it's an important message for us. Obedience does not produce salvation. Chapter 20, you're going to get to the, the famous part of this. I guess if there's one part of it that's more famous than others, and that's the Ten Commandments. Right? He wrote them down in stone. But obeying the Ten Commandments didn't produce salvation. Israel did not work for their salvation. Rather, it flowed out of what God had already done. Salvation has always been by grace, folks. It's no different in the Old Testament than it is in the New Testament. The difference is Christ has come, and we look back on that, and we remember what he's done. But, but it's important for you to see that when they come here to the mountain, and God wants them to obey. And God wants them to live as His people. Living in obedience does not bring salvation. It's in response to what God has already done. God has already saved His people from 400 years of slavery. If, if we view it any other way, then what the obedience does is it produces a moralism and a legalistic life, and a pressure on my own effort. That somehow what I do is what saves me. No. The, the Christian life is to flow out of God's saving grace. It's Christ's sacrificial love and what he did for us that we could never do for ourselves that brings forth a desire to live in obedience to God. If you miss that, and you somehow think you can work for your salvation, that you can add to what Jesus has already done, then you're missing it. And for the children of Israel, it wasn't what they're about to hear in the law. It wasn't about what they had to do in obedience to how God longed for them to live. And there was a way he longed for them to live. But it flows out of the fact that he'd already redeemed them. He'd already passed over and he'd rescued them from slavery. And so they come to the mountain, but they come to the mountain to learn how to live. You say, why, why would you need to learn how to live? Well, again, keep the perspective of time. They had been in slavery for 400 years. 20 generations since Joseph had died. You go back to the, in Genesis and the life of Joseph, and, and, and beyond that, they to when Abraham was given the promise by God. But for, for 400 years, for 20 generations, you know what had defined how they lived? A pagan Egyptian emperor, a pharaoh. He defined how to live. They, they'd gotten used to life in Egypt. Do you remember in the journeys in the wilderness, they complained to Moses and said, we'd have been better off to die in Egypt. You'd have left us there. At least we had good food back there. Because that was what life had been. 
And so God is going to have to teach his people who he redeemed, who he rescued, how to live for him. So my heritage is Scottish. That's Callum. It's the McLeod clan in, in Scotland. Susie and I were in Scotland a few years ago, and I went to the McLeod castle, and I saw the name Callum up there. I was very proud of that. I had no, no idea what it meant to be a McLeod or a Callum and to live that way, but I, that's my heritage. And then the other side of my heritage is, is English. Callaway. Not the golf Callaway, by the way. I wish that had been true, because then I'd be pretty wealthy. But anyway, that, that's my heritage, is, is Scottish and British. It's been over 300 years since the Callums and the Callaways came to America. I have no idea what it means to live like that. No idea. They didn't have a clue as to how they were to live as the redeemed people of God. Oh, oh they knew that God had made a promise to one of their forefathers by the name of Abraham. They, they understood that there had been a man named Joseph who lived and, and yet it had been 400 years of slavery. So do you understand why God had his people come to Sinai and sit at the base of the mountain? He had to teach them how to live. He calls them. Look at verses 5 and 6 of chapter 19. Now therefore... If indeed you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be, listen, my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's who they were. And God had to teach them what it meant to live like that. To live like a treasured possession. To live like a holy nation. To live like a kingdom of priests. And what they say over and over again is this. All God has spoken, we will do. It's here in verse 8. It's twice more in chapter 24. This is what they say. We'll do what you want. We'll live the way you want us to live. They don't get away from the base of Mount Sinai before they fail to do what they say. And you get to chapter 32. That's the golden calf. So chapter 20, he gives them the Ten Commandments. He's teaching them how to live. They don't even get away from Sinai before they fail to do what they say. But it doesn't change how God sees them. The same is true for us. He says they're, they're his treasured possession. Nothing they did cause them to deserve that. Nothing. You're my treasured possession. You trace through the story of the Old Testament, and Israel fails over and over again to keep the promise that they said they would do what God told them to do. So much so that when the kingdom divides, the northern kingdom goes into captivity by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom goes into captivity by the Babylonians. And yet God never fails to keep his promise to his people. Why? Because they're his treasured possession. And they did nothing to deserve it. It was his doing, but he keeps his promise to them. Huh. That should bring some comfort to us, shouldn't it? 
that, that, that he sent his son to die for you and me to give us new life, to forgive us our sins and to put us in a, in a, in a, in a relationship with him that I did nothing, you did nothing to deserve. And that's the grace of God. I, I don't know where you are today in your life. I don't know what the last week, 24 hours, whatever, has looked like for you. But I want you to know this, that whatever it has looked like, there was nothing you could have done in the last 24 hours, in the last week, in the last month, pick any time frame you want, that would cause God to love you more than he does. And the flip side is, there's nothing you could have done in the last 24 hours, the last week, the last month, whatever, to cause him to love you less. Let that sink in. Because in our relationships, human relationships, husband to wife, kids to parents, friend to friend, we, we do know that there are things that we do sometimes that would cause somebody to love us more. You know, you do something special, like, I don't know, do the dishes, maybe my wife will love me more. Let them pile up in the sink, I don't know, maybe she loves me less. We all understand what the, the, the volatility of love on a human level is all about. Do you understand that you are his treasured possession? Not because you deserve it, but because of what Jesus did. And, and they didn't have anything here that they did to deserve being called his treasured possession, but he did that because he redeemed them. And his grace shined forth. Kingdom of priests. It's a fascinating phrase because there was no priesthood at this point. That's going to come later in the book of Exodus when they establish the priesthood and Aaron becomes a priest for God and there's a whole um, tribe, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, the tribe of the Levites, are the priests. That hasn't been established yet. But God said to his people, you will be a kingdom of priests before there was a priesthood, because this was how God was going to use Israel with the rest of the nations of the world. And a holy nation. Set apart. That, that's what holiness is. It's being set apart. Not to isolate, but to be set apart in such a way that the other nations of the world would come to know God through Israel. That was part of the promise made to Abraham. Hey, whatever God says, we'll do. <laughs> Not so much. You don't, you don't even get past Sinai. Even, even Moses failed. He never entered into the promised land. But it didn't mean God loved him any less. What's interesting about those verses, verses 4 and 5 in chapter 19, as he describes who Israel is, listen to the verses from the New Testament in 1 Peter chapter 2 and how God describes you and me. See if it doesn't sound very familiar. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into a marvelous, his marvelous light huh it's an echo isn't it 
to the children of Israel after 400 years of slavery, after he delivers them and redeems them and brings them out of Egypt and sets them on their path to enter into the promised land, the foot of Mount Sinai, he says, I, I, I can tell you that you're my treasured possession, kingdom of priests, a holy nation, and to the church, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession. That I can sit there and be happy and brag about who I am? No. Not according to this, because I am there now to proclaim the excellencies of him who called me out of darkness and into his marvelous light. My life and your life is to look different. Do I obey because I somehow can earn favor with God? No, I, I obey because of what Christ has done for me. And, and we're told in 2 Corinthians that it's the love of Christ that compels me. It compels me to do it for him. Folks, our lives should look different. If you know Jesus, your life should look different. In what ways? Well, in every way. But, but one of the places that I think oftentimes is overlooked when I say my life should look different, your life should look different, is in how we treat one another. And, and it's not just, okay, I'm going to avoid what the Ten Commandments say doing. I don't want to kill anybody. I don't want to commit adultery. I don't want to, you know, all those, I can check all those boxes and think, okay, I'm good. Well, that was until Jesus came along and gave the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> he kind of messed everything up because you know what he did? He connected my actions, the things I do with my heart. See, when my heart gets involved, it gets a whole lot more personal, doesn't it? If it's simply behaviors... Oh, well, maybe I can be pretty successful with my behavior staying in the way that they should. But when you connect my heart to it all and tell me that I'm to live for him based on what's going on in my heart, it's a whole different story. And so what's it mean to live in obedience to him? Well, it means that every person... Every person in this room, every person in my neighborhood, every person in my school, every person everywhere who I come encounter with, you know what? They're an image bearer. They bear the image of God. Shouldn't that make a difference in how I treat them? I, I, I mean, hate is a strong word. I'm going to hate somebody who's an image bearer? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to gossip about somebody who's an image bearer? You see, when I realize that I'm chosen by him, and I am to be a priest for him, and I am to be holy, I'm to be set apart so that I can proclaim the excellencies of who he is. More than anything, I want my life to be an invitation for people who don't know Jesus to come to know the God that I know. And I want to live in such a way that, that I'm holy, not that I'm better than anybody. Not, not, hol holiness, we, holiness simply means I'm set apart for a purpose. 
And the purpose He set you apart for and me apart for, if I know Jesus, is to proclaim the good news of the Gospel. The Gospel of grace. The Gospel that He gave me everything I don't deserve. And He kept from me everything I do deserve. And because of that, He's called His people, whether Israel here in the Old Testament or whether the church in the New Testament, to live that out in such a way that it sets us apart and calls people to see the God who we say we love. I've never had a mountaintop experience quite like Mount Sinai. Maybe you have. I've never seen a cloud descend. I've never seen thunders and lightnings and everything else. But, But it's just as powerful. It's just as powerful. And what I realize is I can be critical of Israel. They're no different than I am. They, they don't make it a year out of Sinai before they disobey God. They, they don't make it a year before they basically violate what they said they were going to do. But I'm no different. And so what do you go back to? You go back to the fact that He loves you. And even when I screw up, even when I mess up, even when I go back, go, ah, why did I do that? Why did I say that? Why did I act that way? It hasn't changed one bit his love for me. It doesn't change one bit his love for you. I, I hope that in your lifetime and in my lifetime, there are many mountaintop experiences. Oh, they don't have to be on a weekend retreat. They don't have to be at a camp. They don't have to be. I, I hope there's many times where the Spirit of God breaks into my heart and speaks to me or causes me to feel and understand something that I ignored in the past and calls me to a deeper, deeper understanding of God's incredible love for me. He, he, he could have left them in the desert, folks. He doesn't. He brings them into the promised land. Even though that didn't go exactly the way it should have, he brings them into the promised land. You know what? One day, he'll bring you and me into a promised land that's far greater. He'll bring us into eternity with him forever because we deserve it? No, because of what Jesus did for us and because our faith and trust has been placed in him. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for who you are. And Father, I thank you for your word and I thank you for this scene that we get to see that's been recorded in Scripture for us. This scene on top of a mountain with a group of people who've been redeemed by you, who've been bought out of slavery, and have been called to live for you. Father, your Son pulled us out of slavery through his death and the resurrection. And Father, you've called us to live as your people, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, so that we might proclaim your greatness to the world around us, that the world might see you in a way that they didn't before because of who you are and because of how we live. So Father, I pray for us today that your Spirit would work in each of our hearts and lives and give us the desire to want to live in such a way that we proclaim who you are to a world around us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.